Reverend Manish Mishra Marsetti writes, the ground shifts, sometimes slowly, sometimes like an earthquake, reminding us that the solidity we often love and seek is an illusion. Nothing is static. Perhaps this is one of the most modest truths we have right now. In a tweet or a policy or a memo, we are bombarded with change, uncertainty, with conflict. How are we as Unitarian Universalists equipped for this moment? As our Unitarian Universalist community leaders committed to racial justice, identify paths to leadership forward in our search and our work to be a liberating faith. As we grapple with how to protect our neighbors and our beloved against violence, against regressive policy change, and as we seek solace, build community in sanctuaries such as this one, if not trust, if not fear, what is the scaffolding of the church that matters now, the church that is courageous in conflict? We can think of a conflict as a situation in which we just disagree with one another. Pretty simple. It's more than misperception or misunderstanding. When we have a conflict with someone, first, it's usually a substantive issue, a disagreement about what we want, our goals, or what we need. The second key element to conflict is emotion, the reaction we have when we are in disagreement. Since when we disagree about something we want or need, it's likely we have some degree of anxiety or stress or frustration or anger or even fear about that. We may remember past moments of those feelings and then feel them again. When conflict increases, we might think that our relationships with another person or a party is threatened. We might feel like our own sense of self or the face we want to show the world is challenged. That's stressful. Modern psychology would lead us to believe that when we're stressed, we rely on our ingrained patterns of how we deal with conflict. We have a set of responses that has worked for us for the most part in our lives, if only to the degree that it's helped us last so long. Take a moment to recall your own communities or families of origin. Yes, you are allowed more than one. And ask yourself, how did you resolve conflict as a family or as a community in which you were a part? Were things loud or soft? A discussion or a yelling match? Did you or a loved one need to take space to be alone? Was there a relative near you that always turned the group's attention to a story or proverb to, in order to get their perspective across? Perhaps you have shared emotions with some people in your life, but not others. Perhaps there are long-practiced rituals that have helped you to negotiate a clash of ideas with someone you care about. 
at times of disagreement, our recognition of our own styles of conflict and how they have been shaped can help us be more accurate in trying to size up someone else's perspective. It can also help us to cultivate some of the empathy that my co-leader, Bill, spoke about in his reflection. If we know even abstractly that the ways another person approaches conflict comes from somewhere, a very deep part of their culture or family or formative experience, we can see them as human. We can start to be curious. Even if we maintain our own dominant style of doing these things, just by recognizing what it might be like to be the other person, we can start to separate our understanding of the dignity and worth of the person from the problem we happen to be discussing. I started to get interested in how conflict works as a member of the Unitarian Universalist Association's Commission on Appraisal. This group studies issues of importance to the faith. For four of the eight years I was on the commission, I worked on a project that looked at conflict in congregations called Who's in Charge Here? The Complex Relationship Between Ministry and Authority. We were particularly interested in how power and culture impacted these problems. This led us to, under, to also look inward to ourselves as commissioners and our own cultural understandings of how conflict worked. Each of our own ways of behaving and expressing emotion in conflict affected how we were looking at the very thing we were trying to do. Guided by one of our own members, we took a quiz that helped us identify what our conflict style was. A researcher named Mitchell Hammer developed this model and he said that conflict styles differ in two ways. One, the ways in which we're either more direct or indirect in approaching conflict. And then ways we are either more emotionally expressive or emotionally restrained in approaching conflict. These types of differences created four different styles. What I liked about what I learned from Hammer's work was that he had tested it all over the country, all over the world, in about 80 countries. Hammer had seen how different cultures have produced different patterns of conflict style. And he was able to identify advantages and disadvantages in each one. He doesn't lead us down a path to say that one culture's way of doing conflict is better than another's. This was a huge, aha moment for me in our work. I quickly realized that a lot about myself and my relationship to the people I was working with for so many years was about my conflict style. I fit into the engagement style, which is verbally direct and emotionally expressive. All my fellow commissioners fit into the discussion style, which is verbally direct, but more emotionally restrained or controlled than I was. Learning about these conflict styles helped me to understand why I sometimes felt out of step when discussing a weighty topic or I couldn't grasp the emotional tone of someone else in the group, what they really felt or thought. 
Most of the time I could easily adapt or, or name this problem, but sometimes I, I could tell the other commissioners just didn't know where I was coming from. I realized I may have even appeared angry or fiery when I would share my opinion with passionate intensity, which I think sort of freaked them out. I also couldn't get it when a colleague seemed to be preferring to look at facts or figures, or I thought maybe they were withholding something. Of course, this is all based on perception. And working with the styles, we were able to work better as a team, take more risks with one another. We became curious. We became curious because underneath our opinions on a conflict was a desire to know one another, a defining feature of our beloved faith, relationship. It wasn't always neutral territory, and the process of resolving our conflicts took time and attention. Our Unitarian Universalist principles helped us to stay at the table, helped us to affirm each other's worth and dignity and act in ways that allowed each person to understand and identify those actions as such. Based on our, some of our own religious heritages, you'd think as Unitarian Universalists we'd be used to conflict by now. I'm preparing to teach this immersion course, taking students to Transylvania, a homeland of Unitarianism. In rejecting the Trinity, the early Unitarian Christian churches were saying no to things a lot and not just walking out with some sort of verbal disagreement. I think that our very existence in some way may be resting in a commitment to conflict, in a curiosity to conflict. In one period of our history, the church had been determining, in the 16th century in Transylvania, the church had been determining a lot of things about people's lives. And reformers sought to transform social life through transforming church and its doctrines through formal debate. At the time, a man named Francis David was working as court preacher. Yes, that existed. That was a real job. I don't know where my guidance counselor went wrong, but that, that was a job back then. The debate was seen as acceptable over issues such as personal identification with one idea of God or Jesus or something else. While some clergy were pretty concerned about this radical form of religious tolerance, discussion of reform on these matters was allowed to take place. While one king had permitted these debates, when he died, the next ruler didn't identify with David. And this pattern of open, direct, and passionate debate, so much so he forbade it to go on. Eventually, a colleague reported him, and he was charged and convicted of the crime of innovation. Innovation! This was the title of the crime of challenging religious doctrine. The real conflict may not have been the material over what they debated, but the right to deliberate, the value, the need to treat each other well in such a debate. After David's death in prison, Unitarianism wouldn't actually have any major cultural shifts in doctrine for over a century. What would it have been like if David's inquisitiveness had not been shut down? What different understandings of faith would have been claimed in the meantime? Did we lose our love of conflict after its brief heyday? In the reading from Reverend Kelly Ashworth Jackson, he says that in the church that doesn't matter, people don't get offended. I think he's offering us the idea that disagreeing viscerally with something we hear in church is not enough to abandon community ties. 
In my health ethics course, I remind my students that ethics is method-driven, process-driven. Here, we don't agree to disagree, we agree to keep talking. Churches that matter may have internal disagreements, and in order to resolve them, we have to try to understand one another, not just the subject at hand. Our values and principles, our covenant, it's how we put them into practice, which is all about our culture, the one that we're creating together. Disagreement and challenge do not have to do harm, and yet harm is still very human. Universalist theology may bring even more beauty to conflict. As theologian Reverend Dr. Rebecca Parker writes, there's no divine force that's going to divide us from one another. We have to approach conflict today, I think, with the curiosity that our covenants, our human-to-human associations require of us. This is how we can be in solidarity. This is how we act for justice in unity with the people who may not always think like us, but love humanity, love our earthly home, and through covenant, make promises to both. My faithfulness, my curiosity, my spiritual practice beckons me out of my sometimes snarky feelings these days and keeps me in the curious mode still. The stakes on the national stage are so high, we can't bear to cut off curiosity. May our hearts be open, may we be filled with loving kindness and seek understanding as we heard our choir sing, towards ourselves and towards the conflicts that so need us to show up this week next, and in our collective future. It is good to be with you, Unitarian Universalists of Palo Alto. And now Bill will lead us in a time of giving.